This is Anthony Arino, and you're listening to In the Arena. Every Sunday morning, I send out a newsletter. And if you're not registered for that newsletter, go to thesalesblog.com forward slash newsletter and sign up now. And I'm making a point of this because on most Sundays, I get an email back from my good friend, Bob Berg. And Bob always offers some insight or says something about the email that we end up having a conversation about because he's brilliant. So if you're a sales professional and if you want to bring your sales success to a new level, then join my friend, co-author of The Go-Giver, which sold 500,000 copies. Go-Givers sell more in the sales classic Endless Referrals Bob Berg in Orlando, Florida, for his next Go-Giver Sales Academy. This is a live event. So at this live event, you're going to get Bob and his business partner, Kathy, and they're going to work on helping you achieve greater success on your own terms. This is what I like about this program. Each workshop is limited to only 20 people, so you're going to get Bob and Kathy's individual attention. You're going to get to strategize with them. You're going to get mentoring, and you're going to do this in a mastermind environment with really highly successful people who are going to learn with you and share with you so you can learn and grow together. You're going to learn about communicating value. You're going to learn how to spread that value and touch more lives, and you're going to have a greater impact. You're also going to discover your natural attributes and advantages and how to use those. And as one final note I'll add here, I'm adding this note because I read the book. Bob's got a tremendous framework called Objection Proof, and you're going to learn how to deal with every objection, get to its root, and work through it together with your customer, something I call resolving concerns. You're also going to leave with a 90-day action plan. You're going to move forward with clarity, with focus, aligned with your purpose, and you're going to go out and you're going to do great work because that's what the Go-Giver is all about. So if you want to join 20 people... When you join, there'll only be 19 spaces left. Go to thegogiver.com or email Kathy at thegogiver.com and join Bob Berg and Kathy for the Go-Giver Sales Academy. You'll find more information in the show notes and uh, do reach out and let me know when you get registered and tell Bob that I sent you. Today's guest is Matt Abrahams, and I'll tell you just a little bit about Matt. He's the co-founder and principal of a company called Bold Echo, and he's a lecturer at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business on the campus of Palo Alto, which is absolutely stunning and beautiful. He teaches classes in strategic communication and effective virtual presenting, and he published a book called Speaking Up Without Freaking Out. And as a speaker, I love to learn about speaking, and as a longtime member of Toastmasters, I love to study all things public speaking and communication. I was introduced to Matt um, by a friend, Sean Murphy, who we interviewed here some time ago. And what brought Matt to my attention and why we invited him on the In the Arena podcast is for a Stanford Business Graduate School of Business uh, article on Insights by Stanford Business, and it's called Tips and Techniques for More Confident and Compelling Presentations. And it's a super long post 
with great insight and also actionable steps that you can take. And I love the actionable steps. I think it makes an article like this worth printing out and worth studying and worth taking some action on. So I had a bunch of questions and we invited Matt on to talk about ways that you can plan, practice, and present your next talk, whether that's on a stage in front of people or it's a TED-type deal or if you're actually standing in a boardroom presenting. So this is Matt Abrahams from Stanford Graduate School of Business in the arena. Hey, Matt, how are you? I'm doing great, Anthony. How are you? I'm wonderful. And we have the shared friend of uh, Sean Murphy, who brought you to us and introduced us, so I appreciate that. How do you know Sean? Uh, Sean and I have been working together for quite a while. He's just got great energy. I love his ideas, and we've just communicated with each other over the time and bounced ideas off of each other, and I I think we're helping each other both to to get our messages out. That's great. He's a very positive guy, and I love the Optimistic Workplace because I love that idea of, Mm -hmm. of work being something wonderful and joyful rather than something miserable. Absolutely. And I hope for all of us, we can find that kind of work. For people who don't know you, I want to sort of get a little bit of a backstory going because I'm always interested when somebody goes really, really deep on some subject and 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 masters that subject and comes up with their own ideas about what's right and what's wrong. And you, you lecture at Stanford, which is a very British way of saying you're a professor, right? And, and strategic communication. So I want to, I want to understand what was the impetus? What, what, caused you to start studying and writing about and teaching strategic communication? What hooked you? What was the thing that hooked you? So my interest in communication dates back to when I was just a young lad. Uh, When I was in uh, high school, I became very interested in how communication can affect people and influence people. And through my academic career, I just became more and more fascinated with it. I started by being really interested in how people use ambiguity strategically. So all through school, you're taught to be very clear and concise. But when you look at communication in the real world, you find that people are are often being very ambiguous in what they communicate. And that fascinated me. I took that into my graduate studies and, and looked at how that influenced interpersonal relationships and business relationships. And then I left academia to, to actually make money and pay off loans and was working in the corporate world for 10 years. And man, did I just see really challenged communication all over the place from leadership to individual contributors, meetings that went awry. And from that, I applied my academic learnings uh, into the workplace and saw that they could add some value from there, when my wife and I started our family, decided that uh, the pace I was living my life at was not going to, to work and, and came back to academics and ever since then have been very applied in my work. And I'm very fortunate at Stanford's Business School to be able to take academic theory and make it very practical for the students in terms of helping them really see how their communication can affect in a very positive way what happens in their workplace. And ambiguity? can be very negative. Uh, Well, it can be. It can also be positive. It's just really thinking about in any given communication situation, what am I trying to achieve? And being ambiguous is one mechanism by which to try to achieve something. Uh, For example, if you have a new product launch coming and you're not quite ready to let that out, 
of the of the bag, then you might be more ambiguous. In other times, when you're you're giving uh, direction and or changing direction, being very uh, specific and direct is very important. So ambiguity is but one of many tools people have to communicate effectively. Do you have an event? Was there something that happened in high school that that <laughs> what what was there something that captured your attention there? Uh, clearly, you've read the first paragraph of my book. Uh, when I was a freshman in high school, my very old and decrepit English teacher had us all give presentations to introduce ourselves. And a handful of us after class, he pulled us aside and said, hey, you're pretty good at this talking thing. I need you to go compete in this speech and debate tournament. And as a 15-year-old, I had no idea what this was. So I did what he told me. I went the following weekend to present and I, I had written a speech on karate something I was passionate about at the time. And I started my presentation with a, a karate kick because he told me, be very engaging when you start. But I was so nervous about the pre presentation. Uh, I, I had never been in front of this large of a group. Parents were judging us. I knew some of the judges. They were my, my friend's parents. The girl that I had a crush on was sitting in the room. And because of this anxiety, I forgot to put on my special karate pants, you know, the ones with, with the, the expandability. And, and I started with a karate kick and I ripped my pants, not just a little rip, a big rip in the first 10 seconds of a 10 minute speech. And ever since that moment, I have been captivated by how anxiety can influence in a negative way people's ability to communicate. And that's really what sparked my interest in communication back then. You had a little anxiety? Just a little bit. I had a little to start, and boy, after you rip your pants as a 15-year-old in front of a lot of people, that anxiety goes through the roof. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. That's the age <laughs> where you are being judged, and you feel like exactly. you're being judged. And there's the cool kids and then everybody else. And so, yeah, there's a lot going on there. Yeah, a, a speech and debate kid with a ripped pants is not on the cool kid list. I'll no, tell you that. Not so much. <laughs> no. let's, let's talk about this idea of strategic communication. And uh, yes. I've read some of your work. I want to talk about what are the outcomes that make communication strategic. And so I think when you just even say the word strategic communication, you're, you're, you've got an implication there that there is non-strategic communication. So there's a, a different, a different approach here. What, what is and what isn't strategic? So fundamentally, to my definition, strategic communication has a specific goal. There's a goal to which you are marching towards. It's a goal that is that can be articulated in a clear way and that can be motivational to people. Much of communication, the goal is ambiguous or the goal is not clear to people. So to me, at a fundamental level, strategic communication is goal-driven, it is motivational, and it is something that people can articulate clearly. Yeah, and I think that the the interesting thing, if, if this podcast is going to be listened to by a lot of salespeople. And uh, I think all the communications customer facing should be strategic. I mean, you, you should have some sort of idea of and have some sort of a plan for thinking about where do we both need to go while we're in, engaged in this. So I want to sort of run down that path. And I, I want to talk about an article on Stanford's site with your advice about presenting, although we'll probably broaden this to talk more about wh what we do when we're customer facing. But I wanted to just dive into some specific questions around that article. And sure. there's there's a couple things as a speaker, and, and I, I speak professionally probably 40-plus times a year, every year. Mm -hmm. um, Good for you. And, and I, I, have, I plan, I do a lot of things, 
But in your planning section, you start with what's the key question? And I'm intrigued by that. And then I'm even more intrigued by the second piece that actually it's the third piece in your framework there about outlining the talk using questions. So can you explain both your, your thinking about starting with this question and then outlining it through questions and explain your experience here? What have you learned through this approach? Because it's, it's interesting to me to, to take it from that view. Thanks for asking this particular question because I'm very passionate about it. And in fact, uh, many people who are customer facing really gravitate towards this advice. So fundamentally, Anthony, it starts with whenever you're communicating, especially if you're customer facing, you need to be audience centric. You are in service of your audience and of their needs. And in order to do that, you first have to start by saying, what is it that they need? What's their knowledge? What are their expectations? What are their attitudes? Once you have that framework and think about it, I have found, and the research supports this, that taking a question-based perspective, what are the questions my audience needs answered in this interaction? Not only does it help you be audience-centric, but it puts you into instantaneous conversation. And we know from lots of research and personal experience that questions are conversational and conversation really is what connects with people. So by starting by framing any interaction as a question, what, it, what does this person need to get out of this in, in particular instance really helps you. Once you have that approach, you then organize your content in a meaningful way. And rather than memorize some script, I believe outlining is key. So you know your key points. Putting that outline in a question-based format helps reemphasize that you are in dialogue with your audience. So rather than saying bullet point, talk about advantages of our particular product that we're selling, say, what are the advantages for the product to this customer? That's the question that appears on my outline. So I am constantly being in a position where I am answering my customers, my prospects, my audience's unasked question. And by being in service of that, I am more conversational. And it happens to make me more confident because I know the answer to the question I am answering. I, I like this idea of the, you're thinking of how do I serve that person? And I think that's always the beginning of every single interaction the, with a customer. It's what, what do I need to do to serve them? And I think mm -hmm. that's a great starting point. So can you give me an example of outlining questions and something that you've done when you're thinking of the outline, what are maybe the first three questions that would get you started thinking down some path? So my favorite way of structuring information is a very simple structure. It's the what, so what, now what structure. Those are all questions. What is it that is needed in this situation? What is it that I'm talking about? So what is the content? It could even be an answer. If you, in fact, I answer most of my questions in this format. What, so what, now what? The what is the answer. So what becomes why is this important? What is the value of what I'm introducing you to, be it my answer, be it my product, be it my service? And then now what is the next step? If I'm answering a question, the now what is here's what it means for you. The now what if I'm selling something might be sign on the dotted line or let's arrange a next meeting. So the First fundamental questions I start with are what, so what, and now what. I have a question on that, but I'm gonna I'm gonna reframe that for you another way. It's an interesting dynamic, and I'll share a couple uh, thoughts on that with you. 
on what I think and let you give me some coaching on that. So the thing for most of us, if we're presenters, if we're speakers, or if we're sitting in front of a customer is relevance. And and what I'm asked most often is how do I be more compelling? How do I help compel my prospective client to take action? And if you're in front of a bigger audience, I mean, the, the job just gets bigger. How do I compel a thousand people to one, believe that this is true, to believe that there's this case for change, and then the the now what to march and go take action on that. So what do you do as a presenter or as somebody who's speaking and somebody who's sitting in front of people that they need to move to increase and improve your relevance? And then I'll, I'll tack onto this. What do you do to create a more compelling case for action? So it, again, it all starts with really understanding what motivates your audience. And each person or people can, will have very different, potentially have very different motivations. So having an appreciation for that and then figuring out how to tell relevant stories, how to present relevant data based on those needs. Some people, let's say you're selling a car. Some people might, what's most important for them from their perspective is safety. For other people, it might be performance. For other people, it might be fuel economy. In all those situations, the way I go about trying to motivate them to buy that car should be different rather than the shotgun approach where I send everything out. So fundamentally to me, it's about understanding the audience and their needs and then targeting your message, developing your story and the support for that story that, that meets their, their particular needs. To make it compelling, to make it motivational, I really like any strategy that gets people engaged in collaborating with you. It could be asking questions of your audience. Maybe if it's a large audience, you take a poll. If it's a small audience, you ask them for their immediate feedback through questions. It could be painting a picture of the future. Imagine what it would be like if, or what if we could do this? If you paint that picture of the future, they're much more likely to be engaged with helping you create that future. So there are certainly tools that you can use to make things more engaging and and invite your audience to collaborate with you. But it all comes back to what are their needs and how do I serve them? And there's research to support the power of questions that the brain can't not answer the question, right? I mean, so even when it's rhetorical, it's not really rhetorical because you're speaking to that subconscious part of the brain that has to still answer that. Yeah. So when you put people into fMRI tubes to measure what's going on in their brain and brain activity, when you ask people questions, it lights up regardless of the question is something you physically want them to respond to or if it's just rhetorical. So yeah, it, questions are very compelling and, and engaging. And those are, are useful tools in the structure. So you're you're basically, we're starting with questions we're giving them these questions, and then we're weaving questions throughout this. Let's talk for a minute about stories. Tell me about the power of stories and compelling people and being relevant. So the human brain has evolved over time to store information episodically. We, we actually crave story to help us understand and remember things. You know, long before the internet, long before television and movies, I mean, the way we passed information along was through story. So we are designed to be receptive to story. And the better you can structure your messages to have a beginning, a middle, an end, to follow a logical flow, that's what story is all about. 
And so having these type of stories can really help you. Additionally, you can use little vignettes, use cases to support the major arc that you're trying to communicate in the first place. So story, it's all about story. I mean, today when I go into my consulting practice and help people, I mostly see people with decks and they say, here's my deck. And a deck is not a story. A deck is simply a series of slides. They can be in service of a story, but story comes first. And most people don't do that. Uh, you probably don't see as many sales presentations as I do, or else you would be even more angry about this. But no, no, no customer's question is, what does your building look like? Uh, where are all your locations? Can I see pictures of the old white guys on your board? And those are never the questions that are asked. But the story, right. the story of why we do what we do and yes. why you have the challenges that you have is a different set of, of stories that doesn't show up on the slide deck in quite that way. Totally agree. I, I mean, I agree. The, the slide I see in every slide deck is the 30 or 40 logos of all the companies that have already used the product. And I don't need that eye chart. I want to know why what you're selling can help me. Yeah. And so the why, it's such a better question. Yep. Well, you you led us down this path. I'm going to go um, a little bit deeper on here. You you list five types of structures that you can use to build a presentation. Mm-hmm. This is sort of a quiz for you now, so I hope you remember the five, and we're going to have to look them up together. <laughs> and your choice, which is what, so what, now what, which uh, I like. And I'm thinking this more in, in a presentation. I like to show what's the untenable current state. You know, what, Why do you have to change now? Because I think until... There's some compelling reason to change. Nothing I say after that really matters. If if I say, this is a great idea, you should do it, why should I do it? Then I like the desired future outcome. So if I do this, if I believe this is true, and I, I take your advice, what do I get out of it? And then the supporting stories and the call to action. That's my structure that I like. It might fit in one of your structures, but tell me about your structures that, that people have as choices that they can make, because this is choices, right? You, there's mm-hmm. not one right or wrong way. There's different ways, and you might choose something because it suits that situation better and helps you get your strategic outcome. You said that perfectly. So the, the last part of what you said is there is no right structure, but you pick the structure uh, based on two criteria. What fits the needs of the audience and what are you most comfortable with and can deliver most authentically? The structure you mentioned is a, is a variant of, of a very popular structure, one most people use all the time. It's the problem-solution-benefit structure. Sometimes the, it's not really a problem, it's an opportunity. And the way you framed it is just to change the order. You talked about, here's the problem, here's the benefit of solving that problem, and then here's the, the solution that will get us there. So problem-solution-benefit is a very powerful, persuasive, motivational structure. If you have a hesitant or resistant audience, I might suggest even moving the benefits first, paint that picture of what the world could be like, talk about why we're not there, that's that problem piece, and then the solution. So very popular structure, one that works very well in many sales situations. The second structure is the one I've already shared, the what, so what, now what structure can also be very motivational, but it's very helpful if you're teaching somebody something or you're demonstrating something. You tell them what it is, what the concept is, what the product is or does, why it's important, and then now what they can do with it. 
Third structure is sequential. It just past, present, future. Here's how we used to do it. Here's how we're doing it today. Here's how we're going to do it in the future. Many keynotes, many uh, executive presentations follow that sequential structure. Here's where the company was. Here's where we are today. Here's where we're going in the future. The fourth structure is really comparison, contrast, conclusion. You take two things, compare them in a sales situation. Maybe you're comparing your product or offering to somebody else's product and offering, and then you come up with the conclusion that is in favor of what you're advocating for. And then the final structure is is one that's more generic. It's called topical, and it has to do with where you none of the points logically needs to precede any of the other points. So if I'm doing a recruiting pitch as to why you should come work for me, I might tell you about my company's culture, my company's offerings, and and uh, my company's technology or people. None of those goes in any particular order necessarily. So that's what we call topical, where they're all centered on a particular point, but the order in which you support that point doesn't matter. How'd I do on the quiz? Did I get you all did, five you right? Did great, yeah. Thank I, you. I wasn't sure if that if I was setting a trap for you or not. I was hoping I wasn't, but you you've got this content. Not your there first you time. Uh, not my first time around the block. No, I spent a lot of time in Toastmasters, and ah, I'm, great. I'm a, just a tremendous fan of the organization. Number one, and I'm I'm even more, I guess, in in love with what Toastmasters does for people because I've watched people come in who literally their body, you would watch the hives come over them as they're speaking, <laughs> yes. who, who yes. 10 speeches later, they're Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon, you know? And you're like, how did that happen? I thought this person was going to crumble and fall apart, and now I see them, and the, it's they're so confident after they go through that experience. But in, in Toastmasters, there's this idea that you can speak to entertain, you can speak to inform, you can speak to inspire you can speak to persuade so they have these strategic outcomes but more and more i'm i'm starting to recognize that if we're speaking if we're presenting if we're in front of an audience we're asking people to change no, no matter what it is we're asking them to change even if it's just to entertain i'm asking them to change their state and come with me you know on this story or through this funny anecdote or whatever it is i think we're asking for that that level of engagement what's your opinion on on that is are all of them in every outcome does it ultimately end up and we're asking people to change i truly do believe that so regardless of the type of presentation there is some persuasive element in it even when i'm just teaching you something i'm trying to teach you that Part of it is I'm trying to convince you that what I'm teaching is relevant and important. So absolutely, there is a persuasive element in all communication. But do do you see that? And, and you have probably the pleasure of people going through your class and then presenting. Do you see that people really get that, that they have to make this argument for change and that they're doing it effectively? And just your general experience consulting, too, with businesses. Because it seems to me mostly, I'll tell you, let me give you a better setup for this. A lot of it's just informational. Uh, I'm just giving information, and I'm not giving you the context. I'm not giving you the why change, and I'm not giving you the persuasive reasons. I'm just passing on information. It's maybe why we hate meetings, because there's, there's nothing being decided. There's no action being taken. It's a lot of we're transferring information to each other, which is necessary, but maybe could be done in other ways if we were, were really focused on what, what's the best method for that outcome. 
Yes, and and I one of my mantras besides you're in service of your audience is really so what and encouraging people to really think about so what why is this important and answering that so what question you make it motivational you make it persuasive so it's not just about teaching you what our product or offering does so what here's what it means for you so I am constantly in my consulting practice and even in my teaching asking my students, my clients, so what? Help us understand why what you're saying is important. And in so doing, it makes it more motivational. I think that's an important point for people to recognize. We are trying to call people to take some new action, to believe something new, you know, to do something that they're not doing. Whatever it is, there's a motivation that I think that has to be. And it's probably the first question is why. Right. As a keynote speaker, I'm disciplined and I'm disciplined in a whole bunch of ways, and I like that. So I'll rehearse a keynote 35 times out loud. I'll record myself into a camera giving that speech. I'll record just the audio so I can listen to it and remember that it's the voice that's conveying the emotion, and I'll, I'll go through that and listen to it, which is a horrible thing to do. It will help <laughs> you crew, but it's not, a lot, it's not the best time you can ever have. I memorize big chunks of what I do, especially stories, And even then, I still drop pieces that I think are fundamental that after having given the speech, I wish I wouldn't have dropped. So give me your thoughts on practicing for presenting and whether or not you should memorize. And if if not memorize, what? What do you do so that you're confident in your, your content and your delivery? A lot of the work I do is around building confidence. And I actually think memorization is absolutely the wrong way to go. It sets you up for two very common failure points. First, by memorizing, you set up the right way to do it and you put a lot of pressure on yourself. So performance anxiety sets in. In a performance, there's a right way and a wrong way. In communication, there is no right way. There are certainly better ways and worse ways. There is no one right way. So memorization sets you up for that mindset, which is, it, it, to me is very troublesome. The other thing that memorizing does is it puts a barrier between you and your audience. It's hard to connect to your audience when you're speaking through a script. I like your idea of becoming very familiar with certain parts of your presentation. I use the wording very familiar. You might not say it exactly the same way every time, but you're going to get through the same kind of content. So to me, there's a difference between memorizing and being very comfortable and familiar. I really like that you vocalize your practice. I strongly recommend that people do that. Recording it as painful as it is, is very helpful. In my consulting practice, I bring in cameras. My students at Stanford, we have professional video crews come in and record some of their presentations. There, There is nothing better than seeing yourself and learning from that. And nothing worse either, by the way. <laughs> Psychologically. But, the, you know, I tell people a lot of what we do in my work is like going to the dentist. Nobody likes going, but everybody's really glad they went. And the same thing is true with videotaping uh, or digitally recording people. So how do you do it? What do you do? I, I really believe it comes down to outlining. A question-based outline is great. So I know the questions that I'm going to cover in a keynote, in a sales call, in a meeting. And I practice answering those questions or going through those bullet points in my outline. I believe in 
practicing in a in a chunked way where you take chunks of your content and you practice them discreetly and perhaps not in the same order you typically go. I don't know if you've seen this before, Anthony, or not, but a lot of people start off better than they end Yes, for two reasons. One, they don't manage time well, and two, because they don't practice the ending as much as the beginning. We figure that if I can get started, I can just end well. So this chunking practice of where you practice the beginning first and then the ending first the next time can really help. So to me, it all boils down to having an outline, practicing that outline by vocalizing it as, as you do, and then changing things up in a different order. And that really makes a big difference. You know, for people who are listening, if you haven't gone to Toastmasters, their first module, Competent Communicator, which is just a terrible name for a module. You don't want to be a competent communicator. You know, it would be better if you were an excellent communicator or some better word. You get 10 five to seven minute speeches. So, so there's your six minute chunk that you could go in and rehearse in front of an audience unrelated to the other chunks that you're going to go through later. It's a great way to build a keynote over a course of time because you're getting to practice those in front of an audience and then when you put them all together you've rehearsed them and you're you're comfortable that's uh if i had toastmasters to do to do over again i would start there and i've actually used that that way to go in and practice just pieces mm-hmm. when i started i thought i have to entertain these people and i have to give them a speech and then i started to realize wait a second i can just go in here and rehearse it doesn't matter if they know what i'm talking about or not you know, it's right. my time and then people started to uh, appreciate that like oh i see what you're doing there let me share some feedback with you. I am a big, big supporter of Toastmasters. Uh, I have been a member of Toastmasters, and, and now I'm brought in to do educational pieces. And I strongly encourage people to check out Toastmasters. Wonderful organization and, and very transformative. Yeah, very transformative. That's the best part. So now let's get a little bit personal and let people know more about you. So um, what, what are you reading right now? Uh, I'm reading Amy Cuddy's most recent book. Uh, her book is Presence. It, most people are familiar with Amy Cuddy, uh, second most popular TED Talk ever. Her notion about how your physical presence, your body posture, not only influences your audience perception of you, but how it influences your perceptions of yourself. Good read. Very interesting. Does this book, and I'm not familiar with Amy's work, mm-hmm. is, is your physical fitness and your physical health part of that? It absolutely is. Her work doesn't talk so much about this, but uh, I I call this uh, communication hygiene, speaking hygiene. You know, everything you would do to be an athlete directly correlates to what you should do when you're trying to communicate effectively. It is far better to get a good night's sleep and eat a good meal than it is to stay up all night drinking Red Bull to prepare for a keynote. Taking care of yourself in terms of anxiety reduction, exercise is, is one of the best tools you can use. So absolutely, taking care of yourself physically and mentally can only benefit you when it comes to your communication. Yeah, it's presence is a big deal. What's the most important book you've ever read and why? I'm going to give you two books. Uh, that question is one that, that, that I, I, I'm a big book reader. So uh, historically, a, a book called Made to Stick by Dan and Chip Heath, sure. uh, wonderfully powerful book to talk about really what we've talked about, how to understand what your audience needs and to convey a message that will really resonate with them. Uh, that book is, uh, should be on every communicator's bookshelf. And then a book that is just, again, transformative is a, is a book by Patricia Ryan Madsen. It's called Improv Wisdom, 
a lot of our communication is spontaneous. You know, we spend time planning our sales pitches or our keynotes, but the majority of our communication happens in the moment. You're walking down the hall and your boss says, hey, what did you think about how that meeting went? Or you're in front of people and they start asking you questions. Improv Wisdom gives some very specific advice and guidance about how you can be more effective in spontaneous situations in life in general, and it translates so nicely into communication. I had two uh, incidents at the last speech I gave. One, a person sitting probably, I don't know, four rows back just blurts out a question right, right in the middle. And I repeated his question because not everybody could hear him, and I answered his question. And that's some of the magic that can happen when you have an audience, and you're provoking yep. them, and you you poke somebody with a stick, and they blurt something out, and then it's it's wonderful. And then I actually shared an anecdote about somebody who was in the room, and when I mentioned his name, another woman's face just gave this response that I had to point out, and it made everybody laugh that there was this great response to this person's just his name being said because of uh, something that he'd done. So the the improv as a speaker can be a really powerful tool if you can embrace it and use it. You've got something that speaks to that on that Stanford article as well about how you deal yes. with that stuff. It's really useful. And we'll put that in the show notes so people can go and read that because you have a really good structure and framework for thinking about that. Who's the Thank person you. that's had the biggest influence on your thinking? You know, I, I'm going to flip that question, I think. I'm going to say what the influence was and then tell you people who've helped me do that. So in my life, uh, a, a repeated lesson I am, I am learning and, and uh, struggling to learn at times is really to focus my attention and intention in a way that, that is focused, directed, and compassionate. And I have been taught that lesson by a number of people. My parents, to begin with, my wife has, has taken on that, that charge. And uh, I have been a martial artist for a long, long time. And, and the person who has, has been my teacher there has also helped me. So to me, all of them have been helping me continue to learn the lesson of focused attention and intention. And uh, you're a slow student. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> or maybe I put myself in challenging situations to have to continually learn that. <laughs> yes. I, it's when you learn the lesson over and over again that you start to realize I might be the source of the problem here at some <laughs> level, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I like to look at it this way. I, I keep challenging myself to put myself in situations where I need to be reminded of that lesson. So I feel that there's growth involved in there, too. There's a gr great revolution going on with mindfulness that's going to be very yes. helpful for a lot of us. What's the most important lesson that you've learned in life? For somebody who teaches communication and to helps people talk more confidently, my book does that, uh, my coaching, my teaching does that. You know, the most important lesson I've learned is to listen. It's not about the speaking, it's about the listening. And from listening, you can learn then how to craft the right message, how to really motivate people, how to share your story in a way that resonates. So listening is really uh, an important part. Uh, or the most important part of communication. I, I so agree with that. It's it's the demonstration of caring, and mm -hmm. it automatically gives that other person significance. The the one thing, I mean, it's probably the overriding human need that drives a lot of what people do is that need for significance, and you're automatically giving it to them just by paying attention and letting them see you're listening. I saw the study, I don't know if you saw it, but there's uh, research that looking people in the eyes while they're speaking is not the best thing to do, but to look at their mouth actually means that they're feeling something better from you than looking them in the eyes. And that made perfect sense to me when I read that. Are you familiar with that study? 
I am not familiar with that study, but I'm familiar with lots of research on eye contact and, and the connection that happens regardless of if it's looking at somebody's mouth or eyes, I, I can only, it is so powerful. Eye contact is absolutely critical for human connection. It's even more so important in Western culture in terms of how we connect with people. If you weren't writing, speaking, teaching, consulting, uh, what would you be doing? You know, I think in some way I would, I would be helping people, uh, I, maybe through being a therapist, maybe a, a coach of some sort in, in athletics. For me, there is something very special that happens when people open up and when people really try to share something with others. And, uh, that's what motivates the work I do now. I, I believe everybody has a story to tell and, and helping people to find that story and articulate it in a confident way is important. And I think a therapist or a coach does similar work. So I, I think I would gravitate towards those professions. I was going to ask you, aren't you already doing that work? I mean, aren't, aren't you at some level? I do think so. I do think so. Sometimes, uh, I, my work feels very much that way, but, uh, and that's what I enjoy about it. It's, tr it's transformational. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What do you hope to be remembered for? It's that piece I just shared. I, it, helping people to find the courage in some cases or find the mechanism to share the, what's important to them. And, and if, if I can help people feel more comfortable and confident and compelling when they present, then I've done my, then I've done my job. And I'll feel very good about that. Thanks for being here, Matt. Thanks so much, Anthony. I've enjoyed it very much. He is Matt Abrahams of Stanford Business School. You can find him at boldecho.com, and you can also find him at gsb.stanford.edu, and we'll put a link to his Twitter as well as the blog post that I spoke about at the beginning of this and that we discussed during this interview. We'll also put a link here for Speaking Up Without Freaking Out, 50 Techniques for Confident, Calm, and Competent Presenting, Matt's book, which was just published earlier this year. I am your host, Anthony Anarino. This is the In the Arena podcast. You can find me at thesalesblog.com. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino. No matter where you go, no matter where you find me, do go to thesalesblog.com forward slash newsletter and sign up for my Sunday newsletter, which is received by about 91,000 people each week, where I share my best insights about sales, about leadership, about management, and about success. You'll have it in your inbox on Sunday morning so you can take action as you plan your week and you get ready to dive into my favorite day, Monday, when we get back to the hustle. Thanks for being here. Do share this with a friend. Do give us a review on iTunes. Thanks so much. And we will see you next time right here in the arena. <laughs>